Welcome to the Jacobite Risings Podcast. I am Madeline McRae, and I will be your guide as we explore the world of 17th century Scottish history. This is Episode 1, Introduction. I will explore the Jacobite Risings from the 1st in 1689 when King James II fled to France and Bonnie Dundee raised an army in Scotland to the 1715 Rising, led by James II's son, James Stuart, also known as the Old Pretender, to the 1745 Rising, led by James II's grandson, Bonnie Prince Charlie, that led to the great defeat at the Battle of Culloden Moor in 1746. So the first question to ask, what are Jacobites? Jacobite comes from Jacobus, the Latin form of James. The James we are talking about is James VI of the Scots and the II of England, Wales, and Ireland, who reigned from 1685 to 1688. The fact that he was the sixth of the Scots and the second for the other kingdoms is important. This was still a time when Great Britain was being formed. The union of crowns had occurred with James I in 1607, but the countries themselves were still separate with separate parliaments and kings. The second question is what is a rising? A rising is simply a rebellion against a government. So why not just say that this is the Jacobite Rebellion podcast? Well, I intend to make this podcast from the Scottish perspective. Many Scots saw the Stuart kings as their kings. When Queen Elizabeth I died in 1607, the Scottish kings were Elizabeth's heirs. They were the rightful kings of the Scots, and since the English accepted the return of the Stuarts in 1660, the rightful kings of England too. So it is not really a rebellion, just an uprising for the return of the rightful kings. At least, this is how the Scots saw it. So how did this series of risings start? It started with James II's reign. He was the son of Charles I, the king that was deposed and then executed by Parliament in the English Civil Wars in the 1640s. James and his older brother Charles stayed safe on the continent with the French and Spanish from the end of their father's reign. The two maintained links with supporters in Great Britain, attempted to subvert Cromwell, his commonwealth, and return to their father's throne. Both Charles and James were believed to be Roman Catholic, but both remained uncommitted given how strong Protestantism was in the kingdom. Finally, with the death of Cromwell, Charles was invited to come reign England, Scotland, Ireland, and Wales with Parliament's help in the Restoration of 1660. Charles II reigned from 1660 to 1685. Charles was known as the Merry Monarch because he ended many of the Puritan rules of the Commonwealth. He enjoyed drinking, music, and feasting. Christmas and holidays were brought back for British peasants and kings alike. James, in 1660, married Anne Hyde, a commoner he had fallen for before Charles became king. They had two surviving daughters before she died in 1671. Charles had many children, but none of them were legitimate. He married Catherine of Braganza, but no children survived. So James was still his brother's heir. In 
This was a problem because James, while Charles indulged, became more openly Catholic. In 1685, Charles II was succeeded by his Roman Catholic brother, James II and VII. James was was not naturally sympathetic to the Coventers. The Coventers were a group of Scottish Presbyterians who signed a covenant with each other, attempting to impose their religion on all of Great Britain in the Civil Wars and in their aftermath. Both Charles and James understandably saw them as troublemakers and initially tried to end their influence in Scotland. The new king tried to impose religious tolerance of Roman Catholics and, to a lesser extent, Protestant dissenters like Presbyterians and Puritans, but antagonized many of the Anglican establishment by this action as they were suspicious of Catholic power. James's half-hearted attempts to woo the Presbyterians seemingly did not win him much popularity among that section of society either, because he would not impose Presbyterianism, but instead wanted toleration for all Christians. Although these actions were widely unpopular, since toleration was not common, at first the majority of his subjects tolerated these acts because James was in his 50s, and both of his daughters were committed Protestants. It seemed that James's reign would be short, and the throne would soon return to Protestant hands. But in 1688, James's young second wife, Mary of Modena, gave birth to a boy, Prince James Francis Edward Stuart, who probably was baptized a Roman Catholic. Due to English and Scottish succession laws, Prince James immediately supplanted his older half-sisters as heir to the throne. Now, the prospect of a Catholic dynasty on the English, Scottish, and Irish thrones seemed all but certain. The Immortal Seven, consisting of one bishop and six nobles, invited James's daughter Mary and her husband William of Orange to depose James and jointly rule in his place on June 30, 1688. The Seven, in a letter to William, went on to claim that, quote, much the greatest part of the nobility and gentry were dissatisfied and would rally to William and that James's army would be very much divided among themselves, unquote. The Seven also promised to rally to William upon his landing in England and would, quote, do all that lies in our power to prepare others to be in as much readiness as such an action is capable of, unquote. William's confidant, Hans William Benedict, launched a propaganda campaign in England, presenting William and Mary as being, in fact, true stewards, but ones blessedly free from the, according to Benedict's pamphlets, usual Stuart vices of crypto-Catholicism, absolutism, and debauchery. So on November 4th, 1688, William arrived at Torbay, England. William brought over 11,212 horse and foot. William's cavalry and dragoons amounted to 3,660. 
His artillery train consisted of 21 24-pound cannons. So including supply train, his force consisted of about 15,000 men, compared to James's total force of about 30,000. William considered his veteran army to be sufficient in size to defeat any forces, all rather inexperienced, which James could throw against him. But it had been decided to avoid the hazards of battle and maintain a defensive attitude in the hope James's position might collapse by itself. Thus he landed far away from James's army, expecting that his English allies would take the initiative and actions against James while he ensured his own protection against potential attacks. On the night of December 9th and 10th, the Queen and the young Prince of Wales fled for France. The next day saw James's attempt to escape. The King dropped the Great Seal in the Thames along the way as no lawful Parliament could be summoned without it. However, he was captured on December 11th by fishermen. On the same day, 27 Lords Spiritual and Temporal, forming a provisional government since James was gone, decided to ask William to restore order, but at the same time asked the King to return to London to reach an agreement with his son-in-law. For on the night of December 11th, as James was entertained by fishermen, there was rioting and looting in the houses of Catholics and several foreign embassies of Catholic countries in London. Upon returning to London on December 16th, James was welcomed by cheering crowds. He took heart at this. He sent a message to William to arrange for a personal meeting to continue negotiating. But William didn't want to negotiate and sent back to James a message. William felt that with the rising violence in London, he could no longer guarantee the king's well-being. James, for his own safety, had better leave London. So James left London, but didn't leave the country. His followers urged him to stay and fight for his crown. But after having received a request from his wife to join her in France... He finally left on December 23rd. The last guard on the coast may have indicated that William may have hoped that a successful flight would avoid the difficulty of deciding what to do with him, especially with the memory of the execution of Charles I still strong. By fleeing, James ultimately helped resolve the awkward question of whether he was still the real king or not having created, according to many, a situation of interregnum. In February 1689, when Mary and William were formally created joint monarchs, the Glorious Revolution formally changed England's monarchy. But many Catholics, Episcopalians, and Tory royalists still supported James as the constitutionally legitimate monarch. Thus, the Jacobite movement had started. Soon an uprising would start in Scotland. Please return for the next episode, Bonnie Dundee and the Rising in Scotland.